It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about mentors. If there's anything I've learned during these past eight years of my life among the scientists, it's that mentorship is crucial in science. The relationship between someone studying to be a scientist and their advisor can be fraught and intense. It can go so well or it can go so terribly wrong. Not to spoil anything for you, but we'll hear a little bit of both in our stories today. Our first story is from John Redden. It was recorded in October 2018 at Real Artways in Hartford, Connecticut, at our show in partnership with the University of Connecticut's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and their Public Discourse Project. The theme that night was intellectual humility. So when I first started teaching... I didn't know anything about being a teacher. I mean, I had distilled some little nuggets of wisdom here and there. Some of it sounded pretty good. Dress professionally, write a good syllabus, don't put too much text on your slides, use learning objectives. Some of it was kind of questionable. Don't sleep with the students. <laughs> Crush their spirit with the first exam to establish your dominance. But needless to say, even when I landed my dream job as a physiology professor, I was still pretty green. See, my training is as a cardiac biologist. I study the molecular mechanisms of heart failure. The classes that I took and the research that I do is on pharmacology and biochemistry in protein-protein interactions. Nobody had ever taught me how to be a teacher. I mean, I was definitely winging it when I was first hired. And so I met frequently with older, more seasoned colleagues. There was one in particular that I became close with. He was like my wise old owl. But actually, he was kind of like the honey badger because he had zero fucks to give. <laughs> See, he had tenure. So he could do all sorts of things that I couldn't even relate to. Like he would swear loudly with his door open and he wouldn't really care who was passing by in the hallway and might potentially uh, overhear the things that he was saying. He even had a reputation among the students for having a little bit of a potty mouth and also for wearing souvenir t-shirts from places like Orlando. <laughs> when we met, I always went to his office because, see, my dream job did not give me a dream office. It actually didn't give me an office at all. <laughs> I had a cubicle. It was a shared office space, and it was small and cramped. 
And if I tried really hard, I could squeeze two people in there, but really uncomfortably. This one time, I actually tried to tempt fate by inviting a third student in, and the fake wall collapsed on him and knocked him over. <laughs> the poor kid just wanted to review his exam. <laughs> but the owl's office was big and spacious, and it had this light uh, window that let in all of this natural light. And my office had fluorescent lights that could turn my skin this really unnatural shade of gray. So we always met in, in his office. So the one day we're sitting there and we were talking and I was telling about this student that I had who was becoming a fixture at my office hours. The student was small in stature, she was shy, she was really quiet, and she would come in to talk about material from the course initially. But it seemed like she always wanted to talk about dancing. And eventually she would tell me about how she felt like she couldn't live up to the expectations of her overbearing Chinese parents. But about halfway through the semester, she had stopped handing in all work. And I would ask her what was going on, and she would make up all of these bogus excuses. She would tell me that she forgot to do it, or that she left it in her dorm, or that she was feeling too tired. Her sister told her that she was lazy. She would make up all sorts of mystery illnesses, but whenever I pressed her for documentation about them, she never gave me any. But she would tell me about this really awesome movie that she saw last weekend, or did I want to see pictures of her dog in a Halloween costume? I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but she would come in, and she would stay for 45 minutes to an hour, and I started to get really confused because thinking, if you're sitting here and talking to me for 45 minutes to an hour, you could have just reinvested that time into actually doing the assignments, and then you wouldn't have this gradebook column that was filled with zeros. I was feeling more like a therapist than a professor. And so I went to visit the owl, and he weighed in. And he said, Redden, you're too nice. He said, it's great that you're young, you have all this energy, but one day you're going to be old, and you're going to be jaded like me. And if you don't start setting boundaries, these little shits are going to walk all over you. <laughs> the pre-med students are the worst. <laughs> and so I kind of shrugged off his, his advice that day um, in the office. I, I knew that it was good advice. I mean, I don't know if he worried a whole lot about how he was perceived by students, whether he cared about being loved or feared, but... I remember vividly that he had this sign in his office that let all the visitors know that their lack of planning didn't constitute an emergency for him because he also had a reputation for his subtlety. And I knew why I was being given the advice because I have a decidedly non-threatening personality and I go out of my way to avoid confrontation. And so it's not that big of a stretch to imagine that students could potentially perceive me to be a pushover. But the thing is, I really wanted to have my students like me, and I still do. I pride myself on being an accessible teacher because I went to a big school and I had 400 students in my classes and my professors didn't know my name. I wasn't an A student. I remember when I was a sophomore taking organic chemistry, halfway through the semester I started to panic 
because the words coming out of the professor's mouth stopped making sense like weeks ago, um, if they ever did. And I agonized for a week over my decision to go and talk to this professor. I didn't know what words to use. I didn't know the topics. Like, how do I even begin to know what I don't know about this class? So finally, I mustered up the courage to go and see him. And when I got there, he actually interrupted me and he said, basically, I'm really busy. And if you have questions, you should go talk to the TA instead. So I never did that, never went to talk to the TA. But in that moment, I did make a promise to myself that if I ever ended up on the other side of the table, that I would do better than that for my students. So professional distance be damned. I'm just going to leave my office door open. You know, I want people to come and see me, to come and hang out. Um, I even bought this really cute little bamboo plant for my office and a Hogwarts pillow to try to make it a little bit less sterile, a little bit more inviting, potentially. And so, again, I, I kind of laughed off the owl's advice that day, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest, pre-med students are kind of the worst. Um, they're, they're really, really high maintenance. But I found myself going back to it and, and rehearing the things that he said, especially as I started to grapple with all of the typical early career stress that academics face. Because my teaching load had increased, and now all of a sudden I had 700 students. And being accessible to 700 people sometimes means that I don't have time to eat lunch. The little bamboo plant that I bought for my office turned from this nice vibrant green to this disgusting shade of yellow and brown as it withered and died. Because, and this was a surprise to me, it turns out that you actually can kill a bamboo plant. You just can't water it for about a, a month or two. And all of this was made worse by things that were happening at home. See, on paper, my teaching contract says that I only spend seven hours a week in the classroom, which sounds awesome, except that a typical work week for me is usually 60 or more hours. I was arguing all of the time with my partner because we just couldn't get our schedules aligned. He would sometimes come home from work at 1 a.m. and I was getting up the next morning at 4.30 um, for most of the academic year, it was dark when I was driving to work, and it was dark again when I was coming home. As a police officer who makes double my salary with an associate's degree, he had a really hard time understanding why I was bringing work home with me in the evening, why I was working every weekend, and, and most importantly, why I wasn't getting paid any overtime. But the worst thing was that I was getting behind on Grey's Anatomy, right? I mean, for all I know, Derek could still be alive. And the reason for that was that I would come home and I would sit down, and 20 minutes after sitting down on the couch, I'd be asleep. But if we had drinks with dinner, if we dimmed the lights just a little bit too low, I could actually get my, my time down to, to about 10 minutes. Our friends would call, and they would try to make plans with us, and I rescheduled and made excuses so many times that eventually our friends became mostly his friends. But it didn't matter, because honestly, the, the thought of adding more things into my calendar just increased my stress load, gave me anxiety. So eventually, I lost my ability to separate personal from professional, because honestly, everything started to feel really personal. On the first day of class, I had told the students that 
They should call me John. Why not? But now they were calling me dude and bro. Like, do I look like a dude bro? <laughs> In our anonymous teaching evaluations that they do at the end of the semester, the students would comment on my colorful socks. Some of them would criticize my outfits. Some of them told me that I drank a cheap brand of seltzer in class and that they must not pay me enough for me to afford a more premium brand. <laughs> I mean, they were right, but ouch, right? <laughs> One student I caught cheating on an exam, blatantly. So I pulled him aside after class and we talked about it face to face and I gave him an out but he didn't take it. Instead, he looked me right in the eye and basically lied to my face. And I started to hear the owl's advice coming back in my head, right? I felt really betrayed. This is what everybody told me was going to happen. And I started to think that maybe I should do a better job of setting boundaries, right? I mean, with everything that's going on at home, like, do I really have time to have students just casually dropping by to talk about their theories for the ending of Game of Thrones? don't know. When I took this job, I, I was excited, but it came with great sacrifice. I had to move away from my family, my friends, from the people that I loved in order to be here, and this was not the thing that I signed up for. So as I was grappling with all of this, my high-maintenance student started coming in pretty much every day, usually unannounced, emails coming in between classes, more missed assignments, more excuses. And I started to feel really, really resentful because here was this one student and I was giving her so much of my time, time that I didn't have, but time that could have gone to my partner, to my friends, to my family, or even to the other 700 students in the class. And she wasn't even handing in assignments. She didn't give a shit about my class. I started to get angry and resentful, and eventually I started avoiding her. She would come and she would knock on the door, and sometimes I would pretend like I wasn't there. Because the best thing about having a shared office space is that nobody can really tell who's inside at any given point if there, if there is a good thing about it. My lightning fast email response time dropped down from about 30 minutes to a day, sometimes two days. and. Sometimes I didn't respond at all because I was feeling overwhelmed. Eventually, she caught up with me at the end of a really hectic week. It was Friday. I had dinner plans with my friends, and they started in 10 minutes. The only problem was that they were an hour away, and I was on campus. I was rushing out, and I realized that I forgot my car keys. So I went back into my office, and to grab my keys, but I left the door open. And when I turned around to leave again, the student was standing there and she was in the doorway. <sighs> Fuck. She forced her way into my tiny cramped little cubicle and she had this backpack on that was probably about the same size as she was. And the two of us were sitting in this really sort of cramped, uncomfortable space about three feet apart from each other, just kind of staring at each other. In my pocket, my cell phone is vibrating with text messages from all of the friends that I have left basically saying, where are you? Should we wait for you? Are you not coming again this time?
They say that when you're really angry, you're supposed to count to five before you say anything so that you don't accidentally say something that you would regret later. So in my head, I'm doing a slow 15. I'm thinking about this awkward, uncomfortable, confrontational conversation that me and the student have to have right now at five o'clock on a Friday. I don't care about your dog. I don't care about the TV shows. The thing that matters to me is that you haven't done anything this semester and you don't have any excuses for it. You're going to fail. This is the reckoning. The student interrupted this thought by unzipping her backpack. And she took out a sheet of paper. And she went on to tell me that that piece of paper was going to be her suicide note, but she had decided to come and see me instead. And in that moment, I was so glad that my office door just happened to be open. And I really can't think about the alternate version where I actually made it to dinner with my friends. That student taught me a lot about teaching, about what it really means to be a teacher, and why all these sacrifices are worth it. And next year, she's starting graduate school. Thank you. That was John Redden. John is an assistant professor in the University of Connecticut's Department of Physiology and Neurobiology. His research focuses on understanding the molecular basis of cardiovascular diseases. He teaches human anatomy and physiology to pre-health majors, as well as a course in plain language science communication. He currently serves as an education mentor for the HHMI National Academy's Summer Institute on Scientific Teaching and is the lead author of Anatomy and Physiology in Context. You can find him on Twitter at RedandJM, tweeting about science, higher ed, sci-fi, and diversity issues. Before we move on to our next story, I just wanted to say that yesterday, February 28th, was my eight-year anniversary of working on Story Collider shows. I know, I know, your cards are in the mail. But it's amazing to me now to look at our website and see the team of 40 people we now have working on these shows to remember back in 2011 when it was just a couple of us struggling to find the time to put together these shows and podcasts in our free time on nights and weekends. I still remember the day that I found out scientists don't use first person in their lab reports. I was so young then, so naive. (laughs) But I just wanted to say thank you for trusting me with your stories and for teaching me so much. Our next story today is from Sarah Fankhauser. It was recorded in October 2018 at the Highland Inn and Ballroom in Atlanta. The theme that night was relief. Great. I can finally stop pretending to be nice to you. That was the response of my research advisor when I told her I had officially joined her lab as a first-year graduate student at Harvard University. I thought she was joking. She wasn't. The next day, I came into the lab, and I found that my spot in the lab had been moved to the bench right across from the glass doors, presumably so she could monitor me coming and going. I asked her about this. She simply said, 
I've decided to reorganize the lab. But MySpace was the only one that was reorganized. I tried to convince myself, this is a good thing. I'm going to get personalized attention from a Harvard professor. What more could I possibly ask for? The change didn't happen immediately, but slowly, day by day. That personalized attention that I thought I wanted emerged as someone monitoring my every movement in and out of the lab. I ran into lab late one morning, arriving close to 7.30. I found my advisor with her blue nitrile gloves on, going through my biohazard trash trying to decipher what I had done the day before. Why did you throw these plates away? What did you do wrong? She demanded to know. And why did you use these P10 pipette tips and not these P20s? I stood there stunned. I didn't know how to answer. I don't know, that's what I used. They do the exact same thing, it doesn't matter. As my lab mates walked in, they just looked at the ground, pretending not to hear my advisor yell at me. What was going through your head to make you think this? She asked. Those words clung to me. What was going through my head? I didn't know, but whatever it was, was somehow inadequate. I walked into my advisor's office late one afternoon, and in a shaky voice I asked, in June, can I have a week off to attend a wedding? My wedding? <laughs> no. You're in my lab, the science comes first. Instantly, tears were in my eyes, and I was choking back, trying to find my words to negotiate. Please, I'll work the nights, the weekends. I won't let the experiments fall behind. Just give me four days. Whatever, she said. Weekly check-ins were the worst. In the privacy of her office, she could dole out whatever verbal abuse she wanted with no witnesses to provide a comforting shoulder after. I sat down in her office and explained a week's worth of data. She leaned far back in her chair, rubbing her stomach. You're an idiot, she said. Just a hint of laughter so I couldn't quite interpret her intentions. You've done something wrong. This doesn't make sense. I just explained to her my results that didn't support her hypothesis. You don't know what you're doing. I'll follow up. Two days later, she showed me her data with the exact opposite results of mine. See, you're an idiot. Explain the results to me. I just want to learn. Please. Shut up. You're not working on this experiment anymore. A new academic year had started. A new round of departmental seminars, informal gatherings, journal clubs. At the first departmental seminar, the speaker had just finished and asked for questions. I raised my hand interested in knowing about his methodology and why he had used a particular technique. And he called on me. 
Instantly, my face turned red. I could feel the flush of embarrassment rising from my chest upwards. This is such a stupid question. I'm such an idiot. I just, I don't want others to know how stupid I am. I tried to phrase a coherent question. And instead, I stumbled over the word, I. Which isn't even a word. It's one letter. And I couldn't say it. I tried to convince myself that I was just nervous. Anyone would be nervous in front of all of these professors. But what I would describe as just stumbling over my words had become a consistent stutter. In a journal club of my peers, my friends, people I started graduate school with, I would just sit in the corner, trying my best not to talk. What has happened to me? I've lost all confidence. I can't even speak clearly. I had other physical symptoms. I had shortness of breath and panic attacks and horrible skin issues. Finally, I went to the doctor. Nothing's wrong with you, I was told. More time passed. Finally, one day, I told my advisor, I'm going to lunch. And instead, I walked the two miles to student health services for my first appointment with a therapist. I was in the waiting room filling out the entry questionnaire, and I came across this question. How many times a week do you think about hurting yourself? I thought this is such a bizarre question. Hurt myself, why would I do that? I already feel enough strength, pain, and stress. Why would I want more? If this question is on here, then there are people a lot, way worse off than I am. Maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I don't belong here. As I contemplated leaving, my name was called. I walked back to a small office and sat down from across the therapist. Why are you here, he asked. I didn't know where to start, so I just described my day, which was the same every day. At the end, he said, it sounds like you're in an abusive relationship. I had never thought about it that way. I have no bruises, no physical scars. I'm not sure I believe him. But I made an appointment to see him the following week. Every week in therapy was the same. I would describe my week and complain about my advisor, and he would listen. And at the end, he would summarize exactly what I had said back to me. Somehow hearing my words said back to me made me realize what I had allowed to happen. He asked me to record my thoughts and my experiences in a journal. And at one point I wrote, I want to quit. I want to leave the lab, but I don't know how. I had spent three years working on this project in this lab. If I leave, I'll have nothing to show for it. No publications, no papers, no 
degree, no letters of recommendation, I would be killing my academic future. How am I going to tell my family, my friends, my husband that I had failed? I couldn't do it. A friend of mine was in a lab in the same department, and he spoke so highly of his advisor. I decided to go talk to him. I wasn't sure what I wanted out of the conversation, but I sat down with Michael, the research advisor, and explained my situation. I think I went out of the lab, I told him, but I don't know what to do next. Can I join another lab? Is that a thing? That would be starting my PhD over from scratch. Is it even worth it? He listened quietly, and then he said, when can you start? Now, right now. In an instant, I had a future again, a way out. The sense of relief was just amazing. I went home that afternoon and meticulously started planning my exit strategy. That Monday, I went into my advisor's office and I told her, I'm quitting. Why? She asked. <laughs> I'm unhappy, I told her. Again, she asked, why? I was stunned. She couldn't see her own behavior. She couldn't see what she was doing. It's you, I said. It's the way you treat me. It's the way you treat us. Your words are cruel and demoralizing. And stop going through my biohazard trash. <laughs> I could have kept going, but I stopped, shook that I had even said those words out loud, terrified of what her response might be. She was quiet for several minutes. And then she apologized. I'm sorry, she said. I'll change. Every time I'm mean to you, just call me out on it and I will give you chocolate. <laughs> just stay in the lab. Please, I'll change. And I believed her. That afternoon, I called Michael. I apologized for wasting his time. But, I said, my advisor's changing. I owe it to her to stick it out. Three months passed. Three months, and nothing changed. Three more months of stuttering. Three more months of therapy. Three more months of me asking myself, why am I letting this person beat down the best parts of me? I had finally learned my lesson again. This time, I went to my advisor's office late on a Friday afternoon. I had my boxes packed, ready to be picked up downstairs. I kept it short. I'm leaving the lab. The next Monday, I joined Michael's lab. I met with him that morning, and I expected him to tell me what questions to ask and what experiments to perform. Instead, he simply asked me, what are you interested in? 
I had never been asked that before. I'm not a scientist. I just do experiments as I'm told. But I was excited. And for the next three years, I explored my questions, I designed my own experiments, and I endured my own many failures. But I always found a path forward. On September 6, 2013, I stood up in front of my family, my peers, and professionals in my field and defended my thesis. Halfway through my talk, I realized I've done it. I've succeeded. I'm about to get my PhD. For a moment, I was caught in these thoughts and lost my place in my talk. I started to stumble over my next few words. Oh, God, this cannot be happening again. Not now. And it didn't. I paused. I reminded myself, I'm the expert. I'm the scientist. And no one is going to make me feel stupid today. Thank you. That was Sarah Fankhauser. Sarah received her bachelor's in biology from Georgia Tech and her PhD in microbiology and immunobiology from Harvard, and is now an assistant professor of biology at the Oxford College at Emory University, as well as one of the founders and the board chairman of the science journal and education nonprofit Journal of Emerging Investigators. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barger, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Zach Stovall, me, Aaron Barger, Mesa Salida, and Kelly Vinyl, with help from Liz Neely and Emma Yarbrough. The podcast is produced by Senior Podcast Editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Real Artways and Highland Inn and Ballroom for hosting these shows and to all of you for making the past eight years magical in a scientific way. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.